بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسوله الكريم نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد So continuing with our study of the Arba'een of Imam al-Nawawi we have finished our study of hadith number 38 except that we have the final part, part number four, which is a summary of the benefits. However, I was notified today that I did not mention the, the summary of the benefits for hadith number 37, the hadith prior to this one. So we'll mention that right now, and then we'll mention the summary of, of the benefits for hadith number 38 after it. So as for hadith number 37, the hadith in which um, Allah's Messenger alayhi salatu wasalam relates from Allah, إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَتَبَ الْحَسَنَاتِ وَالسَّيِّئَاتِ ثُمَّ بَيَّنَ ذَلِكَ To the end of the hadith, indeed Allah, He wrote down the good deeds and the bad deeds, and then He detailed that until the end of the hadith. In relation to that hadith, Shaykh Abdul Muhsin al-Abbad mentioned six points of benefit or six uh, rather benefits that are extracted from this hadith number one the affirmation that the good deeds and the evil deeds are written down number two that from the favor of Allah Azza wa Jal is that he multiplies the reward of good deeds number three that from the fairness and justice of Allah Azza wa Jal is that he doesn't increase the evil deeds he doesn't multiply them in contrast to how he multiplies the good deeds number four that Allah rewards for the mere intention of wanting to do a good deed even if a person doesn't do it. The mere intention, a genuine intention that a person had of doing a good deed, Allah rewards a person with a complete good deed just for the intention. Number five, that the one who intends to do an evil deed but then leaves it for the sake of Allah then because he left that deed, that evil deed, a good, complete deed is written for him. Number six, this hadith, in it is an encouragement in doing good deeds and abstaining from evil deeds. So that was the summary of the benefits from uh, the 37th hadith, which we covered two lessons ago as for last lesson hadith number 38 then the summary of benefits concerning it are nine number one this is the hadith hadith qudsi in allah ta'ala qal man aada li waliyan faqad aadantuhu bil harb to the end of the hadith that allah has said whoever is hostile to an ally of mine then I have declared war, war against him. To the end of the hadith. So the summary of benefits are, number one, 
بيان فضل بيان فضل أولياء الله وشدة خطر معاداتهم. This hadith in it, the virtue of the of the awliya of Allah, the allies of Allah, is highlighted, and the severe danger of being hostile towards them. Number two, that the wilayah of Allah, this allegiance of Allah, that Allah, that you become an ally of Allah, that state of being, of being an ally of Allah, is acquired by performing the obligations and likewise performing the supererogatory deeds. Number three, that the most beloved of deeds via which a person can draw close to Allah is performing the obligations. Number four, in this hadith, the characteristic of mahabba, the attribute of Allah loving, that Allah has the attribute of love, that he loves, this attribute has been established and affirmed in this hadith. Number five, in this hadith we can see that actions vary in degrees concerning Allah's love for those actions. Allah loves righteous deeds, no doubt, but they vary as far as how much Allah loves them. So there are deeds, good deeds that Allah loves more than other good deeds, for example, prayer. Prayer is more beloved, yani a mandatory prayer is more beloved than supererogatory prayer. Number seven, the one who attains the love of Allah, then he will be directed by Allah. Allah will direct him to the right place, to the right things. He will, yani like navigate him, navigate his seeing, navigate his hearing, navigate his gripping. Navigate his walking in the right way, in what pleases Allah, in what is best for that person. Number eight, that love of Allah Azza wa Jal, that Allah loves you. When Allah loves you, then the slave ends up having his du'as answered, and he ends up being he ends up being he ends up receiving sanctuary and protection. From whatever he fears. Number nine, that the reward of Allah Azza wa Jal for the slave, the reward of Allah Azza wa Jal for a slave is by Allah Jalla wa Ala answering, the answering whatever the slave wants and saving him from what he fears. That is Allah Jalla wa Ala rewarding a person. That is a manifestation. Of the reward of Allah Azza wa Jal for a slave. Tamam. So that is hadith number 38. Now we'll move on to hadith number 39. And that is the hadith of Ibn Abbas. Radiallahu ta'ala anhuma. Anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam aqal. Inna allaha tajawaza li an ummati al-khata' wal-nisyan. Wa mastukrihu alayhi. Hadithun hasan. Rawahu ibn Majah. Wal-bayhaqi. Wa ghayruhuma. So in this narration, Allah's Messenger said that indeed Allah has pardoned for me, for my Ummah, has pardoned for me 
when my ummah make a mistake, when they forget, and when they are forced to do something. Indeed, Allah has pardoned for me concerning my ummah when they make a mistake, when they forget, and when they are forced to do something. Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Al Abbad's explanation to this hadith is very brief. Uh, two uh, two parts. The uh, second part is just a summary of the benefits, uh, containing two brief benefits. So, part number one in it, Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Al Abbad mentions a few points. Um, number one, we will this is we'll we'll break it down. We'll break down part number one into into a. Uh, Further point. So number one is that when the Messenger والسلام, said that Allah has forgiven for me my Ummah. What does this term mean, Al Ummah? My nation. What is this term in reference to? Because we all use it. However, many a times when we use it, when we say the Ummah, the Ummah. Uh, the, the, the meaning that comes to mind is the Muslims. Um, but there are two meanings to it, which Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Al-Abbad, he considers it uh, beneficial to point out. So number one, uh, or rather the Ummah is, uh, the term Ummah is in reference to two. Ummah to Da'wah wa Ummah to Ijabah. The nation of Da'wah and the nation of Ijabah, the nation of answering. So Ummah to Da'wah, is in reference to every human being and every jinn ever since Muhammad was sent as a messenger all the way up until the establishment of the hour so that is Ummat Ad-Da'wah Ummat Ad-Da'wah every single human being every single jinn since the time of Prophet Muhammad all the way till the end of time Tamam as for the second group concerning whom the term Ummah is applied, that is Ummat Al-Ijabah, Ummat Al-Ijabah. And they are those whom Allah has granted tawfiq in entering into his upright monotheistic religion. And they've become Muslims. So, two categories, Ummat Da'wah, the Ummah of Da'wah, basically everybody since Muhammad وسلم, up until the Day of Judgment. Number two, Ummat al-Ijabah, the nation of answering, and this is essentially the Muslims from the ins and the jinn. Um, and this hadith here is an example of which Ummah, in this narration, the uh, Messenger said that indeed Allah has pardoned for me, pardoned for me, my Ummah. As far as khata and nisyan and being forced is concerned. What does the Prophet mean here when he says ummah? Does he mean ummah to ijabah? Or does he mean ummah to da'wah? Does he mean the ummah of answering the call of Prophet Muhammad? Meaning the Muslims? Or does he mean everybody? Muslim, non-Muslim, everybody. Obviously in this narration it is in reference to ummah to ijabah. Those people who have embraced Islam, the Muslims. An example of the second category, the other category, Ummatu Da'wah. 
everybody, Muslim, non-Muslim, from the time of Prophet Muhammad all the way to, to the Day of Judgment. And the, an, a, an example of that is found in the hadith when the Messenger alayhi salatu wasalam said, hadith in Sahih Muslim, he said, وَالَّذِي نَفْسِ مُحَمَّدٍ بِيَدِهِ لَا يَسْمَعُ بِأَحَدٌ مِنْ هَذِهِ الْأُمَّةِ يَهُودِيٌ وَلَا نَصْرَانِيٌ ثُمَّ يَمُوتُ وَلَمْ يُؤْمِنْ بِالَّذِي أُرْسِلْتُ بِهِ إِلَّا كَانَ مِنْ أَصْحَابِ النَّارِ By he in whose hand is the life, is the soul of Muhammad. Nobody hears of me from this ummah, whether a Jew or a Christian, and then dies, without having believed in what I was sent with, except that he'll be from the companions of the hellfire, from the people of hellfire. Clear-cut example of the Prophet ﷺ using the term Ummah in reference to everybody after him. Everybody since he was sent as a Prophet till the Day of Judgment. Okay, a few more terms that Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Abad he explains or he defines Al-Khata um, Al-Khata Indeed Allah has pardoned for me my Ummah As far as Khata is concerned He has pardoned the Khata that occurs on behalf of my Ummah What is Al-Khata? It is fi'lu shay' min ghayri qast To do something unintentionally We call it a mistake in English a mistake. You do something unintentionally. You eat something haram, but it was unintentional. You didn't intend to eat something haram, for example. Likewise, the term nisyan. And what is nisyan? Forgetfulness. يعني. أن يكون ذاكراً لشيء فينساه عند الفعل. That a person, he remembers a thing, but then when he goes and does it, he forgets it. He remembers that a thing is haram. He remembers a thing is haram. But then when the actual occurrence occurs, he forgets it. When the actual point comes, when he's meant to refrain from that thing, he forgets it. He, remember, he, he remembers that something is wajib, but when the time comes to actually perform that thing, then Qadr Allah on a certain occasion, he just forgot that it was wajib. Okay? That is nisyan, that is forgetfulness. And al-ikrah, it is al-ilja ala qawlin aw fi'l. Al-ikrah to be coerced to say something or to do something. To be forced into a certain statement, making a certain statement or a certain action. So anybody who falls into these three uh, scenarios, right? He does something haram because he's either forgotten it, forgot, he's either made a mistake, he didn't do the thing, haram thing intentionally. He just... Uh, he, he, did it, he did it unintentionally. Or he forgot that it was haram. Or number three, he was forced to do it. Then for these three categories of people, the actual burden of sin is lifted from them. They're not sinful. They're not sinful for having committed haram in these three situations. Number one, a person was genuinely committing the error, committing the sin, but he didn't mean to do it. That wasn't his intention. It was unintentional. Number two, a person was committing haram, but he forgot that it was actually haram. Genuinely forgot. He is not sinful. Or number three, a person was forced 
to commit the haram. And then Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Al Abad mentions that there are, uh, you know, um, evidences from the Book of Allah Azza wa Jal concerning this as well. And he mentions certain ayat. One of them, the ayah in Surah Baqarah, "Rabbana la tu'akhidna in nasina aw akhpa'na." Oh, our Lord, do not take us to account if we forget or we make mistake, or we, or we make a mistake. <coughs> yani we do something unintentionally. Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Al Abad, Hafizahullah Taala wa Raah, he then um, also mentions some very very important points that are relevant, and that is that if a person <coughs> does end up harming someone else he does end up harming someone else destroys his prop property uh, and so on and so forth for example he harms somebody in his wealth in his blood in his but it's unintentional or he forgot or he was forced to do so then again he is not Someone that is uh, uh, taken to account in that regard. However, he doesn't have to compensate the person. Like, for example, the one who kills someone. Kills someone unintentionally. Manslaughter as we call it. The one who commits manslaughter, then he has to pay, pay, pay the blood money. And he has to make a kafara, an expiation. If... He has, however, been forced to kill an innocent person. So now we're not talking about um, forgetfulness in um, or, or, or unintentionally harming someone. You unintentionally harm someone. You unintentionally took their wealth or what have you. This is now where you've been forced to kill someone. You've been forced to murder someone. This is not unintentional. Someone is uh, driving the car and he ends up killing somebody because he maybe because of uh, because of somebody coming through in his way. That is separate. When, however, you are forced to kill someone, then in that situation. It is haram. It is not the case like before where you're not taken to account. Yes, you may have to pay the blood money or you may have to compensate. or But you won't be, you're not sinful for having done that. You're not sinful for having by accidentally caused the death of somebody. You're not sinful for having by accidentally harmed the property of somebody. You're not sinful. You may have to recompensate them, but you're not sinful. However, if you kill someone because you, you're being forced to kill them, you don't want to, but you're being forced to do so, now you're still sinful. It's not allowed for you. Why? Because you can't allow yourself to live by killing someone else. You can't preserve your life at the expense of someone else's life. Okay, you can't kill someone just because you want to save your life. That's separate now. That's separate. You can't kill someone just to preserve your own life. Number two, 
يعني this is now uh, part number two of Sheikh Abdul Muhsin's uh, explanation, which is a summary of the benefits. So Sheikh Abdul Muhsin al Abad he says, مما يستفاد من الحديث, and he mentions two points. Number one, بيان سعد رحمة الله وفضله وإحسانه إلى إباده حيث رفع عنهم الإثم في هذه الثلاث. In this hadith, we can clearly see the expanse, the uh, ek, uh, the uh, the sa'a, the expanse of Allah's mercy and His favor and His kindness to His slaves, in that He has lifted the burden of sin from these three categories of people. Number two, رفع المؤاخذة على الخطأ فإن كان الخطأ في ترك واجب فعله. وإن كان في إتلاف حق لغيره ضمنه. So point number two is that we can see from this hadith that being taken to account for having committed a mistake is lifted. The burden of having committed a mistake, the accountability for having committed a mistake. The state of being sinful for having committed a mistake, that's lifted now. And if the mistake was in leaving off an, a mandatory deed, then a person does it. A person does it. You forgot to pray, for example. Then as, we, as has been mentioned in the narrations, the person forgets or he was asleep. And then he pray, and then he prays it when he, as soon as he remembers. As soon as he remembers, oh, uh, it was salat al, uh, such, such and such a salah. As soon as he remembers, he prays it. And if it was the case that the mistake occurred in harming someone else, harming the right of someone else, then you compensate them. So that is Sheikh Abdul Muhsin's brief explanation to hadith number 39. Now we'll move on to hadith number 40. Hadith number 40 is a well-known well -known narration and that is the narration of Ibn Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhuma who said أَخَذَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ بِمَنْكِبِي فَقَالَ كُنْ فِي الدُّنْيَا كَأَنَّكَ غَرِيبٌ أَوْ عَابِرْ سَبِيلٌ He said that the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم took me by the shoulder and he said be in the world as though you are a stranger or a passerby. وَكَانَ إِبْنُ عُمَرَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَىٰ عَنْهُمَا يَقُولُ إِذَا أَمْسَيْتَ فَلَا تَنْتَظِرِ الصَّبَاحِ وَإِذَا أَصْبَحْتَ فَلَا تَنْتَظِرِ الْمَسَاءِ وَخُذْ مِنْ صِحَّتِكَ لِمَرَضِكَ وَمِنْ حَيَاتِكَ لِمَوْتِكَ He would say, Ibn Umar رَضِيَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَىٰ عَنْهُمَا would say, if you reach the evening, then don't wait for the morning. And if you reach the morning, if you get in the morning, if you arrive, uh, if, you, if you reach the morning, then don't wait for the evening and take from your health before your sickness and from your life before your death. And the hadith has been recorded by Imam al-Bukhari. Sheikh Abdul Muhsin al-Abbad's explanation to this hadith consists of four parts, the fourth part being a summary of the benefits. So as for the first part, he says that in this narration, فِي أَخْذِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ وَسَلَّمْ بِمَنْكِبْ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ بِنْ عُمَرَ رَضِي اللَّهُ تَعَلَىٰ عَنْهُمَا تَنْبِيهٌ وَحَثٌ 
وحث له على وعي ما يلقى عليه في هذه الحال الشيخ عبد المحسن is now commenting upon that part of the text where the messenger of Allah he grabs and he holds Abdullah ibn Umar from his shoulder why did the messenger do that? Why did he hold him from the shoulder? He did so in order, or he did so to alert him. And as an encouragement to Abdullah radiallahu anhu wa an abihi to retain and pay attention to what is about to be said to him. You know, sometimes when you're talking to somebody, when someone's talking to you, someone's talking to you, but then they grab you maybe from your arm in a friendly manner or they take you by the hand there's some type of physical interaction that occurs there's some touching that occurs he grabs you from the shoulder or he takes you by the hand or he holds you by your uh, 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 your um, your arms your attend your attention to what that person is saying becomes more focused your attention to what the person is saying becomes more focused. When someone grabs you and he says something to you, you end up remembering whatever he said to you better than if he hadn't have done so. So this is very significant. That Allah's Messenger والسلام, he grabbed onto the shoulder of Abdullah ibn Umar Why? So that Abdullah ibn Umar can pay attention to what the messenger is about to say, and he can retain it. Likewise, another point. When someone does do that to you, when someone does grab you and hold you and say something to you, and you remember it, and then later on, you relay that statement that was mentioned to you by that person, later on you relay it. But then you also mention the finer details. You mention, oh, he grabbed me by the shoulder. What does that show? What does that indicate? Again, I'll say it in another way. When someone talks about an event that occurred in the past, and he mentions certain fine details of that event, you'll say, oh, you know, last year in uh, February, um, when um, the... Uh, lawn and the garden in my house was very much trimmed the gardener had come and he trimmed all the grass and on that day a uh, a, a, a torrential rain occurred and um, you know there was a leakage in my house but the fact that he remembered the trimming of the grass that insignificant detail, the fact that he's able to recall even such an insignificant detail, such as the trimming of his grass, or even something, you know, even more insignificant than that, shows what? What does that indicate? It indicates how well he's memorized that event, how well he's memorized the torrential rain that occurred on that day, how well he's memorized the leakage in his house. And maybe what the plumber said on that day. 
The fact that he's memorized such fine details such as the trimming of the grass shows and indicates how well he has memorized and retained the recollection of that uh, incident and that event from a year ago. So now, when Abdullah ibn Umar anhuma, when he relates to us and narrates to us the statement of the Prophet, be in the dunya, as though you're a stranger to the end of the hadith. When he relays this, but he also mentions within this relation, in this uh, uh, narration, he also mentions fine details such as the messenger grabbed me from my shoulder. He took me by my shoulder. Ah, that indicates how well Abdullah ibn Umar memorized that hadith, retained that hadith, and how accurate he must be in relaying that hadith to us. So that is number one. Number two is concerning the statement be in the dunya as though you are gharib, as though you are a stranger, or a passerby. Al-gharib, who is a gharib? What is a gharib? What is a stranger? A stranger is al-muqim fi ghayri baladihi liqada hajatin. The gharib, the stranger, is the one that is resident in other than his homeland, in other than his actual country, just in order to be able to uh, um, fulfill a certain need of his. He goes to a certain country because he has a certain need there, and then he goes back home. So as soon as he's able to go back to his country, he goes back. He goes to the country to do what, he goes to the foreign land to do what he needs to do, and then as soon as he's able to come back, he comes back. So that is a gharib, what we translate as a stranger. The Abir Sabil, the passerby, he is the one that is traveling and he passes by other lands without staying there, without establishing any residency there. He just goes and goes past those lands, goes past those lands up until he gets to the end of his journey. So, th and these are the two types of people that our Prophet has instructed us to be like. Strangers and passers-by. And the land of strangeness and the land of passing by, this hadith is in reference to the dunya. And the journey and the procession that is being referred to in this hadith, because obviously, if you're a stranger or a passerby, you're on a journey to somewhere, aren't you? The journey and the procession that is being referred to in this hadith is the journey towards the akhirah, the journey towards the afterlife. And that can only occur by a person remembering death. And that can only occur by a person having not high hopes, not having high hopes in the dunya. And by a person preparing in this life for the afterlife with righteous deeds. As Allah Jalla has said, وَتَزَوَّدُوا فَإِنَّ خَيْرَ الزَّادِ التَّقْوَىٰ And take provision 
for indeed the best provision is taqwa. And Imam al-Bukhari, he relates in his, he relates in his Sahih from Ali ibn Abi Talib ibn that Ali who said, Irtahalatid The dunya has turned with, with its back against you. Wartahalatil And the Akhirah is coming heading towards you. Walikulli wahidatin minhuma banoon. And each one of those two dunyas, each one of those two. Each one of those two has its banoon, its children, its people, its passionate followers. فَكُونُوا مِنْ أَبْنَاءِ الْآخِرَةِ وَلَا تَكُونُوا مِنْ أَبْنَاءِ الدُّنْيَا And so be from the children of the afterlife and do not be from the children of the dunya. فَإِنَّ الْيَوْمِ عَمَلْ وَلَا حِسَابٍ وَغَدًا حِسَابٍ because today is action and no accounting, no recompense, no rewarding. But tomorrow will be accounting without action. And Allah's Messenger, والسلام, he has explained and clarified the example of this dunya and the end result of this dunya. And that it is not a place of permanent residency. When he said, Ma li walid dunya. Ma ana fid dunya illa karakibin. Istavalla tahta shajaratin. Thumma raha wa tarakaha. What is the dunya to me? I am nothing in this. I am nothing in this dunya. Other than a rider. Someone that is riding on a journey. He takes shade under a tree. And then he gets up and he leaves. So that is a reminder from Sheikh Abdul Muhsin Al-Abbad with these ayat and these narrations about this dunya and about how we should treat this dunya. Number three. Part number three. is concerning the statement of uh, Ibn Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhumah when he would say when you reach the evening, don't wait for the morning. When you reach the morning, don't wait for the evening. In this statement of Abdullah ibn Umar is what? فِيهِ مُبَادَرَةْ أَصْحَابِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم إِلَى تَنْفِيذِ وَصَايَ الرَّسُولِ We can see how the companions of the Prophet would rush in executing the, the advice of the Messenger Not only did he hear it, but he would speak about it. He would mention it. He would mention it to others, racing towards implementing the advice of the Messenger And likewise, we can therefore see the virtue of Abdullah ibn Umar because he himself is now Executing this advice of not waiting till the morning if you reach the evening. Don't wait till the morning if don't wait till the evening if you reach the morning. He himself is executing this advice, and likewise he's directing other people to execute this advice of our Messenger. 
And the meaning that, the meaning behind this statement of Abdullah ibn Umar, that if you reach the evening, then don't wait for the morning. And if you reach the morning, then don't wait for the evening. The meaning is that a Muslim should be on the lookout for death. You should be on the lookout for death. You should be watchful and keeping your eye out for death. The Muslim should be prepared with righteous actions, without laziness, without procrastination. He does good deeds. He works righteous deeds in his day as though he's not going to reach the night. And when night comes, he performs righteous deeds as though he's not going to reach the morning. And thus we find that from, from the Salaf, Mansur ibn Zadan, it was said concerning him that if Malak al-Maut, if the angel of death came to his door, then he would not have any increase of good deeds. He would not be able to add to his good deeds, meaning his life was filled with good deeds. His time was filled with good deeds such that if Malak al-Maut came, he would not have the ability to add more deeds. That is part number three. Part number four is Sheikh Abdul Muhsin's commentary to the last statement of Abdullah ibn Umar when he said, وَخُذْ مِنْ صِحَّتِكَ لِمَرَضِكَ وَمِنْ حَيَاتِكَ لِمَوْتِكَ He said, take from your sickness before, sorry, take from your health before your sickness and from your life before your death. The meaning of this is that a Muslim should race towards righteous deeds. Race towards righteous deeds whenever he is able. And that is, essentially, when you are healthy. When you are healthy before those obstacles come in your way which may hamper you from performing righteous deeds or performing as many as you used to do before or performing it in the same manner that you used to do before in the same amount that you used to do before and so on and so forth factors such as sickness preventative factors and obstacles such as sickness and such as old age and that a person and likewise the statement of Abdullah ibn Umar indicates that a person should fill his life with righteous deeds before death comes and surprises him. And then, at that, and then at that point, he relocates from the land, from the world, the realm, the domain of action to the realm and domain of reward. So that is the end of part number four. Part number five is a summary of the benefits. And inshallah ta'ala, what we'll do is we'll mention those points of benefit next session. There are five points of benefit. We'll mention them next session inshallah ta'ala. And perhaps uh, bring some more further benefits and elucidations and reminders concerning this issue and this matter of being in the dunya as though we're strangers. And not being overly attached with the dunya. And putting our priorities straight. And looking at the dunya as and how it truly is. And doing anything and everything that we need in order to have this correct, real, objective mentality concerning the dunya.
So inshallah ta'ala we'll do that next week. I don't want to keep everybody for too long. 40 minutes has now passed. So we'll conclude at that point. Wa jazakumullah khair. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.